In the morning, when you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. Joel Embiid will not play in games one or two of the second round. He has an orbital fracture from game six in Toronto. He got an elbow in the fourth quarter from Pascal Siakam, and apparently it broke bones in his face. Did you see um, this? I Don't... not. I saw the replay of the elbow right. to the face. Yeah. Okay. I didn't see it when it happened. Yeah, I yeah I did not really notice it happening either. I don't think I was watching that because they were they blew them out in the second half. So I don't know that I was locked into a twenty point game. But yeah, it, it was an inadvertent elbow with Pascal Siakam driving to the rim, and apparently it, an orbital fracture Ugh. is what he have. Um, Kyle Lowry is going to miss game one for the Heat as well. So Miami not at full strength, but no Joel Embiid for at least two games, and it could be more. It's do be the tough Sixers to win have, the series? Do they have a chance? Maybe an outside chance, but two games without him, that's gonna. That, I think that's gonna be hard to win the series against uh, against the Heat. No matter how many, I mean, Kyle Lowry's only gonna miss one game. At least it says miss one game. Sometimes that misses means two or three. Um, but I don't know what you think. I think if he misses both games, and like Miami goes up two zero, it's a hard comeback. And and here's the thing: who knows with the orbital bones? Who knows how good he's gonna be when he comes back? That right. just the words orbital bone does not sound good. So here's here's my uh, I'll give them a like three percent chance to win something like that and here's here's what it's based on something we haven't actually seen yet James Harden's the best player in this series he's got to play like it then right if that's what I'm saying if he if he is the best player in the series they can win the series if James Harden is like he was a few years ago where it was oh this guy's an MVP candidate mm-hmm. this guy is one of the best players in the league. They can win this series. Like, that guy is on the team. Uh, the right. problem is we haven't actually seen James Harden do that in a kind of a long time now. Yeah. So expecting that to happen seems unlikely. And he's been outplayed by Tyrese Maxey in the first round of the playoffs so far. So I find that very unlikely to happen. But I would say that that's a possibility. They could win this series if James Harden returns okay. to being James Harden. So I don't think that happens, but there is maybe like a 3%. Yeah, I'm not going to discount it, but we haven't yeah. seen it. So until he proves yeah. it, then I think they have a very, very slim chance of winning if he, in and, fact, misses two and comes back not 100%. You know, I should, I should actually give them like a 5% chance given the way this NBA playoffs has gone. The Miami Heat's and starting, starting lineup might get hurt in game one. So <laughs> there, there's a chance that Joel Embiid might not even be the biggest injury in the series. So maybe I should give him more than 3% because there's almost certainty somebody for the Heat's going to get hurt in this series but Embiid's he's far and away the most important player for Philly he's far and away the most important single player in this series I think Miami you could take even Jimmy Butler you could take any one player off Miami and feel pretty good about their chances of against a Joel Embiid the Sixers but taking Embiid out it just it's so overwhelming so five percent chance that either a James Harden is really really good or b the Miami Heat lose like five players to injuries and the Sixers win Great question. Thank you. Trevor Bauer was suspended Uh, for two seasons by Major League Baseball. There was also a story from the Washington Post. A second woman has accused Trevor Bauer of sexual assault, accused of choking her multiple times until she was unconscious during sex. Bauer, I believe, no commented or didn't give a comment uh, when asked by the Washington Post about this. Um, From the baseball side, his career over? Bob Nightingale thinks it is. 
Did you see his tweet? I did. He said he'll never play again. Yeah. Um, um, this boy, this is two years removed. Let's say you know he's appealing it, but let's see, it's upheld. Two years removed, and he's already been gone for as long as he has. I don't know if anyone resigns him. Is he is he going to be that good in that amount of time that someone would sign him just for the PR sake of it? Just for like, why would you sign this guy for everything he's being accused of? Now there's always a team out there. There's always a team out there. If they really think someone can help them and it's all about winning, maybe they try to explain it away. But I'd find it hard to believe um, that in the major leagues, maybe pitches somewhere else in the major leagues, someone would take him on. I tell you what, the team, the last team he's on, is not going to take him on. We don't deal with that stuff. You sure? Yes. <laughs> I don't think any. I don't think those guys in the locker, the, the uh, clubhouse, would allow that. Well, well by the time he's done, by the time well, then again, it's over, it'll be a whole new clubhouse. Just, Justin Turner, who's the most outspoken about it, might be retired by then. Yeah, it'll be a whole new <laughs> roster by then. So <laughs> they won't even know who Trevor Bauer. Who's that? Oh, he's good. All right, we'll take him. I have to imagine uh, his career is going to be over based on the age and probably more importantly what he's accused of doing. Because now he was. I don't know what the right word is. He was, I guess, officially cleared through the court system. Yeah, they didn't. He wasn't charged. Right, uh, which doesn't mean he didn't do anything wrong. It sure. just means they weren't going to charge him. But when you now have multiple women accusing you of basically the same thing, uh, we and Major League Baseball basically spoke on it, saying they're not really too worried about him not being charged. They're suspending him for two seasons. Anyways, I think that's going to be enough for teams to say, okay, we're, we're not going to – right take that chance on a 33 year old that hasn't pitched in what would be what would be three maybe seasons three seasons then. yeah that's that'd be probably stupid for a team to do that's a great great question unlv has extended lindy larock through the 2026-2027 season sam gordon reported she had at least one offer from a power five school but she came back to coach the lady rebels for this season uh, are you surprised that she turned down a Power 5 school to stay with UNLV? I'm not. I think she loves being at home. And with the team she has coming back, I don't know if she would want to jump yet. And I don't know if the – I don't know the Power 5 school is. We know, I think, Arizona State. I don't know if they still have an opening or they still have a uh, job open. Maybe it was them. I'm just throwing them out there because I knew they had a job open and it's close. Uh, they probably knew a lot about her being from the Pac-12. But um, I think there's very few jobs she would jump at. I think there's one job she'd consider because it's her alma mater. But other, other jobs, I'm not so sure she wants to leave home. You know, it'd be more money, but I'm not so sure she wants to leave home. I think the key you said was the team she has coming back because they basically bring everybody they bring back everyone from last year's team. And they won the Mountain West. They went to the NCAA tournament. There's a from, a from a pure, like, how do I maximize my career as a coach? Lindy The Rock should come back to UNLV rather than accept a low-level Power 5 job. Because UNLV is probably going to be really good this year. And if they win the Mountain West again, and let's say they get in the NCAA tournament again, she's probably going to have better offers. She's probably going to have more schools interested in her because when you do it back-to-back years, that's what happens. And that's when she sh- that's probably when it'll be um, time for her to maximize her career is after next season. If they go like let's if they go back to the NCAA tournament, even if they lose in the first round again, if they win the Mountain West, they have like a 28 and 6 record, win the Mountain West, they go to the NCAA tournament as a 12 seed and lose people are, that's probably when it'll be the best time for her to take the next job, because that's when she'll be, you know, at her best or coming off her best seasons at UNLV. So I'm not surprised she's back. If it was a low level power conference school that offered him because next year, she's probably going to be in an even better situation yes. to get a better yeah. or higher paying job. 
Next question. The Toronto Maple Leafs pay the, play the Tampa Bay Lightning in the first round of the NHL playoffs. Game one is tonight at 4.30. NHL playoffs finally starting. Uh, I am fascinated with this series simply because you have Toronto, who is seemingly every year the regular They're season. They're always darlings, the regular season team. And they find a way to lose in hilarious fashion in the first round, playing the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions and... Toronto's favored. They are they are the team that is expected to win this series. They had a better regular season. The odds are in their favor. And for some reason, I feel like everybody still is going to just be like, yeah, Tampa Bay wins the yes, series. Yes, Tampa Bay wins the series. <laughs> Austin Matthews scores 14 goals, and Tampa Bay wins the series. He's up to 75. I will. I, I, Toronto wins. I think Toronto gets a big first-round victory over Tampa really? and wins. I, right. I think I'm going to take the champs. You're going to take the champs? I'm going to take okay. the champs. I think Toronto wins. And what's going to be funny is Toronto wins this series. It'll, it'll be a, like a big deal, right? You knock out the two-time sure. defending, two defending champs. You're a team that seemingly never wins a playoff series. It's going to be a big deal. And then they'll somehow turn around and lose in the second round. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you got past Tampa Bay. And now you lost to, I don't even know who they're. I guess they, they sort of, whoever they Would it be Gerard Gallant? Uh, it might be. I'd have to look at the bracket. I can't remember who's on their side of the bracket. But, yeah, it might be Gerard Gallant who he'll probably lose in the first round too because, come on, they're not very good. Next question. The Saints are expected to sign Tyron Matthew. They did. To Adam. Oh, did they find Apparently they this morning they did. Okay. So did the Raiders miss out here? Uh, I don't know. Do I want to grade this one? Yeah, give us a grade yeah, for I can the grade Saints this signing Tyron Matthew. Of not signing him? Okay, yes. Let's do Raiders not <laughs> signing Tyron Matthew. C minus. C minus. <laughs> what does that even mean? I think they should have taken a shot at him. Okay. So Check. can you give him an F? Nah. Okay. I'm I'm being nice this morning because uh, I'm gonna, I'm about to uh, hear your Bischoff's breeze here in a second when you get insecure. Uh, so I'm going to say C minus. You like me to do grades? I'm giving you a grade. C minus. Okay. What's your grade? Um. Man, I'm going to pull an Ed Graney and give him an incomplete. <laughs> oh, incomplete. Man. Uh, do you think still... they should have gone after him? I mean, I, I look. We don't know if they went after him or not. Okay, it's incomplete because if they don't actually add a safety and not like undrafted free agent safety, if they don't add a legitimate safety option, they're getting an F. Okay. Jared doesn't have the sound anymore. Okay. F. Uh, if, I if understand. They, I get that. Right. If they do add another safety, right, then okay, fine. You let Tyron Matthew go. That's perfectly fine. But if they don't, they get an F because... Jonathan Abram is there just a projected starter F. still, and that's not very good. And we're not counting the one, two, only two. I thought there were three. We're not no, counting three. the guy the from three. Western Kentucky CS Or Louisville no. or Bryce Crosby from Ball State or Isaiah Polamalu from USC. We're not counting no. any of those. No, unless right. unless well, I get I guess an undrafted free agent could be better than Jonathan Abram, so maybe we should <laughs> yeah. count them. The plate and the wind. Did that? No, it got the screen. And you know, that's great work by. And it is. Wow. I don't know if jury's going to stay upright. I don't know if I've ever seen two in a row. And another pop up. This one is around the pitcher's mat. And oh my goodness. <laughs> Right, right there, I, I, I'm not going to pile on, but that sums up the red season so far this year. <laughs> that, 
was audio of three straight pitches that were popped up and the Reds failing to catch all three. Uh, one was the catcher who sort of trapped the ball against the screen. Another was their third baseman who was leaning over the railing and leaned too far. Like he, he stretched his glove past where the ball landed. And then the third was on the infield that just nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody came to catch it. The pitcher just sort of half-heartedly threw his glove out because he thought one of his infielders was going to come catch it. Was this the, the same up. batter? Yeah, same. Oh, same guy. Popped oh. up all three. Three straight pitches. Um, and made it to first. Yeah, and, and got on base. Uh, <laughs> the Reds are now 3-19 and 19 on the season. They are tied for the second worst record be history through 21 uh, games or 22 games, whatever that is. The 1988 Orioles started one and 21. They're awful, man. I saw the, the, uh, I watched the entire Dodger series. I saw the Padres series when they played them. Talk about just automatic wins right now. I mean, uh, I think Vado's hitting like 098. Um, Fam's hitting a little better, but they can't score runs. They can't, they, I, I don't know how many runs they have. You might know that in terms of, uh, so far, but they can't score any runs. They're terrible. And and I, I heard someone on uh, on ESPN the other day say, oh, it all equals out. You know, they're not going to, you know, they're obviously not going to be any good, but they'll, they'll win enough games to, you know, I, I don't know what number he threw out there, but I'm like, I don't think they can win that many games. He threw out a number, not 500, but, you know, a lot, a lot more than they have right now. And I'm like, I'm not so sure. They could set the all-time record. That's how bad they are. So uh, there's a stat called OPS+. Plus which is they take OPS and they make it to where 100 is average. So if you're 100 in OPS plus, you are an average MLB hitter. This is the Cincinnati Reds lineup this year. Joey Votto is 20. His OPS plus is 20. Remember, 100 is average. Jonathan India is 83. Kyle Farmer is 73. Colin Moran is 45. Tommy Pham, 96. Nick Senzel, 59. Tyler Naquin, 87. They have one guy on the roster with over 50 plate appearances that has an OPS plus better than 100, and it's the third baseman who just that. dropped that pop-up yesterday. That's unbelievably bad. Like, when you face their lineup, you are facing eight guys that are below average hitters, and below average is being nice because Joey Votto at 20 is he's the, that's the worst three of the sport. If he does that for the entire season. Oh, here's by the way, I'll give you this for the Dodgers, their OPS plus this year, Will Smith, 130, Freddie Freeman, 153, Gavin Lux, 111, Trey Turner, 101, Justin Turner sucks. Jesus. 46. Yeah, he's horrible. He's horrible Chris right now. Taylor, 132, What's Cody Max Bellinger, 106, Max Muncy. Oh, he sucks too. 73. Yeah, he's not any good. Mookie Betts, 111. So when you face the Dodgers, you're getting one, maybe two guys that are below average, and everybody else is significantly above average. When you face the Reds, it's eight guys that suck. Eight guys <laughs> that should be in double A. What a nightmare that is. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the NBA because the Warriors and Grizzlies might be one of the best series we've ever seen. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. I love nothing more than talking about the refs after a big game. Warriors beat the Grizzlies by one point yesterday. Uh, but two 
referee decisions that I thought were fascinatingly bad. Do you think Draymond Green should have been ejected? No, I think that was more reputation. You think so? I thought it was a lot of a reputation. I thought maybe a flagrant. I think the pull of the jersey kind of uh, swayed them a certain way, but I didn't think the original the original contact was. Um, I think you know. I think it's more reputation for him. If that's someone that's never been uh, considered like a dirty player or never had a lot of technicals, I'm not so sure they throw that person out. I might be wrong, so but if that's, I, I just if thought that's it was Andrew more Wiggins or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I just it's I don't not... think it's. I don't think he gets tossed. Do yeah, you? I, it felt it felt like it was the perfect play for what the NBA now does a flagrant one on, which is hey, you you were trying to make a play on the ball, but you smacked the guy in the face, and we're trying to eliminate guys getting smacked in the face, so it's a flagrant one. But they gave him the flagrant two and ejected him, which I felt like overkill, right? I mean, right, I, right. I don't. Maybe it was. Maybe you got a good point. Maybe it was reputation that if that's Andrew Wiggins or somebody else on the Warriors. Maybe they don't. Maybe he still doesn't get ejected. But I thought that was uh, unbelievably harsh ejection on Draymond Green. And I do wonder if the jersey pull had anything to do with it. Because when they announced the ejection, they just they just mentioned the the hit to the head. Right. And they didn't mention the jersey pull. But the jersey pull was weird, where Draymond Green hits him in the face and then grabs his then jersey. Grabs the jersey. He's going down. Right. And I, I don't think Draymond Green was trying to make it worse, but it certainly didn't help that he right. grabbed the guy by the collar and said, hey, I'm going to help you to the ground, too. Uh, but the other thing that blew me away, 10 seconds to go. One-point game. Clay Thompson, or less than 10 seconds. Clay Thompson misses a free throw, and the ball goes out of bounds on the rebound. And the refs did not make a call on who got possession. They, so they looked just at each other. A, they just did a jump ball. Golden State ball. Right. How did they, they just? How did they not make a call? Can they? I guess I'm I'm asking here because they looked at each other and they didn't know what to do. So I guess you jump it automatically. <laughs> Can they review that at all? So the way that works is the NBA changed it. Where in the past they would review like they'd go everything over and review it in the final two minutes. Right now it has to be a team challenge or a coach's challenge. And I think they're both out of challenges. So right, and so they nobody could challenge anything. But here's the other part of that that I I don't know the actual rule. If the refs don't make a call, can you challenge it? That's a good question. Well, they were both out of challenges, so it, I think it would have been Kerr because I think he, I think they assumed the way the players reacted, it was it was Golden State ball, right? So, but like, if he had had a challenge, could he have challenged that when they didn't technically make a call? Like, they did not determine oh, that it was. Yeah, they just looked at each other. I they think he could said, have challenged it, couldn't he have? And said, "I think it's off. I think it's off them." I assume so, but like, what's the original? Like, we've seen a lot of times that you have to overturn right. the call on the floor. If there's no call on the floor to overturn, what exactly are you? Ch- they I, just I stared at each other. Have. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I was shocked they didn't make a call. And I, I, I guess in reality, not making a call is better than guessing when you don't actually know. But I was still stunned that they just they they didn't make a call on what. Listen, it could have been the biggest. That could have been the biggest call of the game. Oh right? sure, because Absolutely. Memphis, it should not have been Grizzly basketball. They Memphis should not have won, won the, the tip. tip and they got a last-second shot yeah. that they should not have gotten because of that non-call that led to a jump ball. So that was bizarre to me. Now, let me ask you this. How much criticism does John Morant deserve for missing the game-winning layup? Well, first of all, I thought it was a really good play to get him the ball. Uh, and I didn't think Clay Thompson 
was that close to him that he should have bothered him that much. Um, I thought he was going to make it, actually. He makes a lot of those, and he missed it badly. Yeah. Um, so criticism, I'm not so sure. He, I mean, he put himself in position to get a layup, but he missed it, He missed that thing badly. So more criticism for how much he missed it than the actual shot. I mean, if you said, what was it, 3.4 seconds, which they messed that up as well. I think the announcers say it should be like 4.2 because because I think um, they were calling timeout right when they picked, yeah. right when they got the ball. Um, I thought it was a great play to get it to him. So if you could say out of that timeout you're going to get a driving layup, then I don't know what else you could ask for. Yeah, I thought it was basically the best situation the Grizzlies could have put yeah. themselves in. With that much time? The the big issue for that game with John Morant, it's not just the last layup. The second to the, the Grizzlies had two possessions yeah. in the final 30 seconds down by one. Ja Morant in the paint on both of those possessions. Yeah. Steph Curry stripped him on the first one, mm-hmm. and then Ja Morant missed the layup on the second one. I the obviously the last second one, because that would have won the game on a you know, you're walking off the court at that point. The other one, the Warriors still have a chance to win, but the other one was worse because he Steph Curry stripped him. We're not yeah. talking about a good, like a great defender. Steph Curry shut down John Morant on a drive that could have won the game yeah. for Memphis. I listen, John Morant's been phenomenal this year, and it's a seven-game series. You don't want to overreact to one game, but I think he does deserve quite a bit of criticism because you've got to score in at least one of those situations, if not both, yeah. if you're John Morant. And he failed in both, and they they ultimately lost that game. So I think he does deserve criticism for missing those shots. But I also, if I'm the Grizzlies, I'm drawing up that same exact play if I'm in the same scenario because I think he's going to make it more often than not. Do you watch that game with him being thrown out and them still winning, thinking Memphis could win the series? Um, I do think Memphis can still win the series. Wow, Um, okay. But I thought thought the Warriors were going to win coming in. And I still think that, obviously. This doesn't change your mind, obviously. No, it doesn't change it. But I... I do think they can still win, even if Draymond Green is out there. That obviously makes it harder, right? And you, the here's what happened: the Grizzlies missed a perfect opportunity to take Game One. Yeah, where yeah. Draymond Green gets ejected, you're at home. Hell, they they had a lead until the last what two minutes or something like that, and you have your best player with a layup to win the game. Like they they blew a chance to win Game One and really sort of turn this series to where maybe Memphis should be favored at this point. But I still think they can win it. I just, I thought Golden State was winning before, and I, I still think Golden yeah. State's winning. So it may be in six now, but yeah, I think that's what's ultimately going to happen. Coming up next, Jessica Benson joins us from Memphis to stay right here with the Grizzlies and Warriors. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Greeny and Tyler Bischoff. Joining us now from Grind City Media in Memphis is Jessica Benson. Good morning, Jessica. How are you? Good morning. How are you guys doing? We are great. All right. Is the city of Memphis going to survive a six or seven game series where every game is as close as last night's game? You know, it's so funny because I really felt like the chaotic energy of that opening round against the Minnesota Timberwolves was going to definitively feel worse. Because that series, just you couldn't get a feel on it. It was so random and no consistency with it. And so the emotional roller coaster of especially the Grizzlies having to come back down double digit for three of their last four games in that one, I thought certainly it couldn't, it couldn't peak that. Um, but yesterday just proved to me that I really need to get some like pepsid, some anti-acid. <laughs> uh, I need help, essentially. And I think the entire city needs help. Because while it is fun in a terms of, 
two high-level basketball teams going back and forth is exactly what you want in the NBA playoffs. From a personal standpoint, it's tough. So Memphis loses this game by one. John Morant had a layup at the end that could have won this game. Is the feeling in Memphis right now that they blew game one, or is it the feeling that, hey, this is going to be a long series and they've still got a legitimate chance to win this? I think this team always operates under the belief of, hey, we've proved you know, at this point that we can come back. We lost game one against the Timberwolves. How did it continue to pan out? along the way. And, and this is a team that loves to fight with their back against the walls. They've actually performed better when they feel like they're the underdog. And I thought even going into game one yesterday to see on the ESPN projection side of things for all 20 analysts pulled by ESPN to pick the Warriors to win the game. That just felt so perfectly Memphis. Like they could use that to their advantage, but you also can't look at yesterday as anything but a wasted opportunity because that's what it was. The Grizzlies should have been able to find a way to walk away with a win from Draymond Green getting ejected with a minute 18 to play in the first half. And you look at how the Warriors have played without Draymond Green this season, just 19 and 16 on the year. You look at one of, if not the best performance from Jaron Jackson Jr. that we've seen at least in the postseason. And for him to not get a single foul in the second half, which was huge in its own sense, but knocking down threes, going shot for shot with Jordan Poole in the third quarter there, making seven triples in the game for John Morant to perform the way that he did to get a nice bench performance from DeAnthony Melton. And when you're looking at the box score at the end of it, the Grizzlies have more threes, they have more free throws, they have more takeaways, and they lose. And there's no getting around that feeling like you let one go. Did you think, we talked about earlier, did you think Draymond Green, was that fair? Was that more of a reputation injection? I think it's a reputation injection, and I say that as someone who covers the Grizzlies and lives in Memphis. But I also am engaged to a Warriors fan, so I feel like I, I need to put that asterisk <laughs> on my analysis. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, it's a tough scene. It's a tough <laughs> scene. He, and he is a, a born and raised Bay Area native, loves the Warriors probably more than he loves me. It's fine. I, I know that he loves Steph Curry in a way that we can never have that relationship. But for me watching Draymond Green, you, you have to think, was it by the rule book? Sure. If it was any other player out there not named Draymond Green who made that play yesterday, are they getting ejected? Probably not. Reputation plays a part in it. And from the NBA standpoint, when you have a basketball game that's being played, you know, in the way that those two teams were getting down, for flagrant two to be trending nationally on Twitter, that's the last thing you want. You hate when it becomes about the rest. And for the Warriors standpoint, like they played they played angry the rest of the way because they were mad about it. They were still talking about it after the game. So I just I didn't think that he needed to be ejected. I understand why it is. You hit his head, you pull the jersey down. Sure, was he trying to help him back up by like puppeteering him by holding the jersey to prevent Brandon Clark from going completely face first into the court? Yeah, but I didn't think he needed to be gone. I have an important question. Is your fiance insufferable to watch a Warriors game with? Um insufferable is too small of a word. <laughs> it is. I had, I had a friend, he went to the game last night and I was honestly concerned for his safety. And I had a friend babysit him and she said he was on his best behavior until the last two minutes, but he's almost better in a public place. Like when we watch games at home, I have a video up on my Twitter account and Instagram that kind of shows what I've gone through the last 10 years that we've been together, especially during the Warriors championship runs. And it's just a lot. I started having to, to film and tweet through it to help me get through it because he's absolutely insane. Okay, so ten years, it's nothing can nothing can stop this, even if the Warriors go on and win or they win the title. <laughs> They've won obviously ten years you've been with him since they won titles and seen how insane he can get. 
Yeah, it, it's something that, you know, nobody's perfect. We'll have to embrace <laughs> our partners, flaws and all. And we are set to get married July 30th of this year. And I don't think at this point uh, anything can can't. We've made too many down payments on too many bills at this point to pull out at this point. <laughs> all right. Uh when did you guys realize in Memphis, because this has been a recent revelation for the rest of the country, but when did you guys realize that John Morant's dad looked like Usher? <laughs> Honestly, when I saw it on Twitter from Jasmine, like I had never made that connection. And then once you see it, you say, huh, why did I never think of this before? And you have to say, it's all in the sunglasses. Like when they were sitting next together courtside here in Memphis and they had the sunglasses on and the facial hair, it's uncanny. It's, it's literally a doppelganger Spider-Man meme, whatever you want to call it. I never see it when T. Morant doesn't have the sunglasses on, but hey, you, you can ride it now. You got Usher to come to a game, FedEx Forum, sit courtside. That was pretty cool. Is he good for Ja? It's worked thus far, yeah. hasn't it? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be good. My dad and I were joking about this the other day. Like, might not be good for me, might not be good for you, uh, but it works to have, right. from Don Moran's perspective, his dad be his biggest hater. And, like, you say that, <laughs> but at the same time, he's also his biggest supporter. So it works hand in hand. Like, Team Morant's there constantly and is such a big reason why John Morant lives and breathes basketball. It's how he's gotten the work ethic that he has, the mental approach to the game that he has, and to always have that extra chip on his shoulder from his dad's perspective, I think it works. And I, But I also understand on the flip side of people who look at it and they're like, that wouldn't help me because I would, me and my dad would not be be cool in that situation. <laughs> Do we know why John ja Morant's mom is never on TV with his dad? Does she view him as insufferable and doesn't want to watch the games <laughs> with him? You know, that's a good point. I think they both just approach their support in different ways, and she's always there as well, sitting elsewhere. Um, that's funny. Maybe maybe that's what me and Chris will have to do for the rest of eternity. We'll get separate seats <laughs> at games. Certainly can't go to a bar together because that's just asking for trouble. All right. On, on the game itself, you mentioned Jaron Jackson a little bit. Is there any chance he does that again where he's knocking down multiple threes in a game? Yeah, it's so funny to me because I think, again, living with a Warriors fan, I experience a lot of Warriors Twitter and Warriors reactions. It's just a piece of my life. And one of the most common refrains from them over the last 24 hours is, well, there's no way Jaron Jackson Jr. ever replicates that. Like, what a waste of a perfect game from Jaron Jackson Jr. And I'm sitting here thinking, why not? This matchup benefits Jaron Jackson Jr. tenfold more and going up against the Timberwolves. There is no Carl Anthony Towns this time around. I need Jaron Jackson Jr. to step up on the boat and say, I am the captain now. No one out here can guard me. I'm a walking mismatch in this matchup. I can take it to the basket. I can defend at the rim successfully without fouling because even with the three fouls that he had in the first half, none of them were those stupid ticky-tacky fouls that we've seen from him kind of become a staple of his game, unfortunately. They were all legit fouls. And you just kind of looked at him and said, could have gone either way, but not going to knock him for defending well at the rim. You take it, you get what you get with Jaron Jackson Jr. in that standpoint. But he's a threat from three, so you can't leave him out there. And then on the inside, he's going, he's attacking Andrew Wiggins. He's attacking Jonathan Kaminga. He's attacking anyone who's on him at any given point. I think this is the Jaron Jackson Jr. series, and I don't think there's any reason to think he's never going to achieve what he just achieved in game one. Go out there, hit eight threes in the next one. The other thing Memphis can say, probably, and it was said often during the broadcast, especially the last few minutes, uh, the Warriors went small and still got second chance after second chance to get off its rebound. So maybe you walk away saying, if that doesn't happen again, a one-point game can be turned into like maybe an eight-point win. Yeah, it was, it was such an interesting 
game one from that perspective and the Grizzlies going into it, it felt like, oh, if you have a good hand on the rebounding battle, that can be a huge attribute for this team, as it has been throughout the season. And early on, you see Brandon Clark doing what he's been doing this whole postseason, just gobbling up offensive boards and giving the Grizzlies extra possessions. And then it almost seemed like the Warriors were doubling Brandon Clark to prevent him from getting offensive boards in the second half. And I was talking about it with someone yesterday. That's the thing about rebounding in the playoffs. It's just a different game because Sure, physicality-wise, you look at the Grizzlies and think they should be at rebounding this team, but you can't take away the playoff intensity that you saw from Gary Payton the second last night. And it just felt like he was he was getting after every single possession. And so I think the Grizzlies will know how they can adjust. You also have Steven Adams, low-key, waiting in the wings. He's dealing with health and safety protocols right now, and we still don't know when exactly he would be available to return for this Memphis team. But it was such a nightmare of a, of a matchup for him in the first round against the Timberwolves that he was unplayable. But I don't necessarily think he's unplayable this time around, especially if you can get him out there when Kevon Looney is on the court. Steven Adams can get in there. He was a huge key to the Grizzlies being such a successful second-chance point team this season, getting those offensive boards. And also, he's like a massive screen setter. He's got some nice high-low action going on. I think he could be a wrinkle that the Grizzlies eventually can throw out. That might offset some of that for the Warriors. Well, she is Jessica Benson from Grind City Media. Jessica, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Jessica. Good luck Thanks with the fiancé. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great relationship, to have an insufferable fan of a, of a different team. That's, that's a nightmare. Um, by the way, on the, the rebounding there, in the final minute, of the game yesterday, the Grizzlies, or excuse me, the Warriors were playing five guards and they still grabbed five rebounds to Memphis's two. And both of Memphis's rebounds were technically balls that went, uh, that ended up as jump balls. Right. So like Memphis didn't win a clean rebound in the final minute of the game, despite the Warriors playing with five guards. Not good. It's unbelievable. That's, uh, that's, that's unreal that that would happen. Like if you're able to play small, and still, and get, still the get the rebounds? Yeah. <laughs> you keep doing that, you'll win the series in five. Right. That, that's going to be a massive problem that Memphis has to figure out there. But that was it was unreal to me that they kept getting second and sometimes third chances with, like, Andrew Wiggins technically playing the five yeah. yesterday. So, yeah, there you go. Which, by the way, what do you, what do you think is more significant? Jaron Jackson, who had 33 points in that game, or Jordan Poole again went for 31? I don't know if Jaron Jackson, like you said, uh, asking her can keep that up. We've seen Jordan Poole now do this multiple times, so I'm going to say more apt that Jaron Jackson doesn't do that again than Jordan Poole continues to play as he is. I do think if Jaron Jackson does that again, the Grizzlies win that game. If they yeah, if they get that performance again, if they from get Jaren six and Jackson, nine from three from him. Right. If they get thirty points from him, yeah. they're they're winning. And the, if the next time he does it, the Grizzlies are winning the game. Uh, John Moran's going to have to miss a bunch of layups for that to happen right. again. But yeah, I think that does ultimately happen. All right, coming up next, we'll stick with the NBA because the Celtics. What what happened? I thought they were supposed to win the title. It's the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. So Milwaukee went into Boston and won game one, 101 to 89. And Boston's offense was atrocious. I've got some stats here from Kirk Goldsberry. Entering yesterday, the Celtics had never made fewer than 14 two-point shots in any game. They made 10 two-point shots in game one. The Celtics have now played 6,630 games. And 
game one was the first time they made less than 14 two-point shots. It is the second fewest two-point shots made in a playoff game in NBA history. And one more for you. The Celtics shot two of 23 on contested two-point shots. That is the second worst field goal percentage on contested two-point shots in NBA playoff history since they started tracking contested and uncontested shots. The Boston Celtics were horrific inside the arc against Milwaukee, and the only thing that it makes me think of is how bad were the Brooklyn Nets at defense. Well, and how good has Milwaukee come become at defense? Let me ask you that, because when Giannis went out, uh, Brooke Lopez came in. I think he had three blocks. Yeah. I think he uh, actually played really well. Pretty incredible in that game. And as much as uh, Mike Budenholzer gets uh, discredited for Milwaukee always basically playing the same exact style of defense where they drop on the pick and roll mm-hmm. instead of switch or, or whatever, that lends itself to taking away shots at the rim. Now you can give up a lot of mid-range shots, right? You can give up threes when you do that too but it does a pretty good job of taking away shots at the rim or at least forcing tough shots at the rim. And that's what Boston ended up missing a lot of yesterday. And you have their two best players. I mean, Tatum was 6 of 18 yesterday. Tatum Taylor came Brown back to earth big time. Brown was bad. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen like, again. They're they're not going to be that bad, no. but are they going to be good enough to win four games in this series? I think that's the legitimate question. Is Milwaukee's defense going to be this right. good that – like Boston, like again, Boston's going to play better. They're going to score more. They're going to be more efficient offensively. But are they going to be good enough to win four of six the rest of the way? Well, I think that's a legitimate question. If Middleton's only going to miss the first two, and we say it all the time, first two might mean all four or all five, whatever it means, then you better win game two. Right. Because if you go down 2 0, especially yeah. at home, and he comes back, then that series is over. Yeah. The other part that was interesting, Milwaukee's offense actually wasn't that good in this game. But last week at one point, you brought up the idea of, okay, without Middleton, does Boston maybe let Giannis have his and just not let anybody else have a good game? And Giannis ends up having a triple-double with 12 assists in this game. And Giannis didn't shoot particularly well. He was only 9-25, but he had 12 assists. And this is what I thought was interesting. Boston was very, very aggressive with their help side defense. And if anybody started getting into the paint, Boston pretty much always had a help side defender coming over to help. And Milwaukee did a really good job of taking advantage of that by kicking the ball out and getting open shots. Hell, Milwaukee's first basket of the game, Drew Holiday drove to the paint and they helped off of Giannis, who then caught the ball, drove and dunked it. I'm fascinated to see how much they changed that. How much do they maybe get less aggressive on the help? Because if well, they're Drew Holiday was very that, good, right? If they keep helping that way, they're going to give up kick out threes and right. kick out drives to the rim, and Milwaukee was good enough to win yep. in Game One doing that. So, I mean, to be honest, the real answer is don't get beat off the dribble so much. But that's easier said. I mean, Drew Holiday was as good or better than Giannis. Right, and you can't have two guys creating shots and getting to the paint as regularly as those two did. And so that's what I'm curious to see. Boston's was really good defensively in the regular season, dominant defensively yep. in the regular season. And they were good against good teams in the regular season too. But is this going to be some weird stylistic matchup where they just can't stay in front of Giannis or Drew Holiday and they help too much and they lose because of it? Like I'm 
curious to see how they do that because the the other part of Boston is they switch screens more than any other team in the NBA. Like their general defensive strategy when they face a ball screen is to just switch it because they've got enough versatile defenders that it's not that big of a difference. I that normally lends itself to having less help, but Boston switches a lot and still helps, which is a big reason why they got beaten that game. So are you you after game one, Bucks big win. Celtics were a big favorite before that series for a for second round series. You still uh, think Boston wins or you have you leaned uh, to Milwaukee? I have not leaned to Milwaukee just yet. Unless okay. unless Giannis can get six more assists by throwing himself uh, by throwing himself passes <laughs> off the glass for dunks. If he can do that six times a game, then I'm going to lean towards Milwaukee. We need because I don't think Brown and I don't think Brown and Tatum are going to be that bad again. Right. We need an official stat change in the NBA that that counts as an assist to yourself, yes. not an offensive rebound. No, that, that needs assist, to be an official. You get stat an assist change. for yeah. that. That needs to be an official stat yeah. change where you can assist your own shot if you throw it off the backboard. It's not. It's not a missed jumper with an offensive rebound and a dunk. No, it is a Giannis slam dunk two points assisted by Giannis. That's what we want to see in the box score because that's what he was trying to do, and that was pretty good. Um, so yeah. Uh, Giannis is great. By the way, are we gonna if if this hat like let's say the Bucks win this series and Giannis is great, do we get it? Do we do we take away anything from that about Kevin Durant? That's a great point because they just shut him down. And if yeah. he goes off, even though he wasn't very efficient yesterday, but if he gets back to the efficiency and and just dominating, I don't know what that says about the All NBA forward. Like, I'm still stunned at what they did to Kevin yeah. Durant, and then watching yesterday, I'm they like, locked him okay. down. How the hell did they do that to Kevin Durant? That's never happened before.